Support for this episode of Talking Machines comes from Tala. Tala builds intelligent automated assistance for the B2B space. Tala is interested in hiring junior and senior machine learning experts. They're also beginning the search for a CTO. Good candidates will be interested in exploring questions around natural language processing. Great candidates will have previous experience with distributed representations and deep learning. Interested? Send your resume to jobs at thetalkingmachines.com. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. And today, Ryan, you're going to talk to us about probabilistic programming. Yeah, you know, this is a kind of a big deal these days in the machine learning community and to some extent in the statistics community. And, uh, you know, and from the outside looking in, it might not be totally obvious what's going on. So I thought I'd just take a minute and kind of explain what the probabilistic programming story is about, talk about a couple of the different packages that are out there, and, uh, and as usual, give uh, our listeners some links to some papers and things. So probabilistic programming is all about sort of Bayesian machine learning and statistics. And one of the things that's really appealing about Bayesian machine learning is that it allows you to separate out the model of the data, that is, what you think is going on in the world and how you specify the model from the procedure that you use to do inference in the model. And uh, and this is nice because it doesn't sort of conflate algorithmic uh, sort of assumptions with things that we care about, uh, you know, the structure that we care about in the data. Now, in practice, of course, uh, computation informs the choices we make when we model. Um, in, in Bayesian statistics, you often see things like conjugate priors and so on that are essentially um, choices that are made to support computation. But in general, what's appealing is the idea that we can talk about structure in the data separately from the actual way we're going to do the fitting and the inference. So we might write down a big, say, probabilistic graphical model that talks about topics in the data like latent Dirichlet allocation or introduces interesting latent variable models as we've talked about many times. And then you get to choose, uh, or maybe you have to choose, among different possible inference, uh, different possible ways you might uh, you might learn about the data and condition on the data in such a model. Um, whether, and you might choose you know, variational inference or MCMC or um, you know, sort of other ideas uh, in the space. But the point, nevertheless, is that we get to talk about the model that we want for the world separately from how we're going to do inference. This is not, in some ways, this is not so different from the way that we do programming in that, you know, we can write a, uh, an algorithm at kind of a high level using a high level language, and we don't really have to worry a lot about the voltages on the wires. We have some kind of abstraction and a compiler and so on that enables us to trust that the program that we write down is going to result in some useful computation on this machine and that this can be physically embodied in some way. And, you know, this notion of abstraction and being able to specify things at a high level uh, is informing a lot of different aspects of, of machine learning. We've talked about automatic differentiation as an example of that, where you can specify like a forward model or a neural network architecture. And then you can automatically do some of the computations, that is gradient computations, to find good directions to go to fit the model. Probabilistic programming is the idea of coming up with a language that allows you to specify the latent variables and parameters that gave rise to a particular set of data. It's kind of like graphical models um, in that you're, you're thinking about this kind of structure, but it has the property that you're, you're sort of writing it down in a, in a way that's kind of familiar to people who, do, who program in C or Python or other languages. The idea is that you can, you know, you can specify latent variables and the connections between those latent variables and different parameters and so on, ultimately 
generating the data. So you get to talk about the way that you imagine the data are generated and you would then have priors and you have uncertainty that is about what the parameters are. And the idea is you can write that forward process down much in the same way you might write a, you know, a, a program and then uh, the sort of compiler or the interpreter or sort of the engine of the probabilistic program will then do inference for you. So you hand it some data that you are sort of saying came from this generative process, but where the, all of the intermediate states of the program are unknown. And then the idea is that using some kind of inference mechanism, it will give you estimates, posterior estimates of what all those latent variables are. And this is really nice because the appeal here is that we can specify what we think about the world in a forward way and not a backward way. So uh, when we you know, maybe do um, astronomy or something, then we, have a, we imagine physical processes that go on. Stars have different temperatures, galaxies have different shapes, and they have different ages and so on. And we can kind of understand the physics of that and how that gives rise to an image on a telescope. We could kind of write that down in a forward model kind of way. And then the idea is then we get actual images from a telescope. Then the hope would be to infer what the, you know, what these interesting properties of stars and galaxies are. So there's a lot of different sort of areas of science and engineering where this comes up, where you can imagine a process that might be happening kind of behind the scenes of the data. And so then probabilistic programming gives you a way to kind of write that down. And over the last couple of years, there's been some interesting advances. Um, I should say that probabilistic programming as an idea goes back quite a while. It kind of um, it corresponds roughly to kind of the rise of, of people really taking Bayesian methods seriously kind of the end of the 20th century. One of the very successful initial uses of, of probabilistic, pro probabilistic programming was a, a tool called Bugs that I think did quite a lot in the, uh, you know, sort of penetrated some of the quantitative social sciences quite well. Um, and it used Gibbs sampling to do inference, and you could specify a kind of graphical model uh, with a relatively simple sort of directed acyclic structure. Um, and then there's been there's been other developments, uh, sort of uh, in like the early 2000s. So uh, work by Avi Pfeffer, who developed a, uh, a probabilistic programming system called Eyeball, I B A L. Um, and then there's also uh, Factory from uh, from Andrew McCallum. So more recently, there's been work in trying to think about how to make these languages very powerful. So rather than having them kind of be kind of fancy or syntactically pleasing ways to specify graphical models, having them be more like Turing complete. So um, having them be formally expressive in ways that theoretical computer science has an understanding of. Um, I think one of the first efforts or, or kind of at least one of the efforts that, that sort of popularized a lot of this was um, was Church, which was uh, sort of grew out of Josh Tenenbaum's lab at MIT. Um, and this was, uh, I think, Noah Goodman and uh, Dan Roy and Vikash Mansinga. Um, and then that's kind of spawned some other efforts. Uh, so Church was based around the scheme programming, programming language, which is a beautiful language, but is in some ways kind of impenetrable to, to, uh, to sort of the masses. And uh, so Vikash has been working on um, a, uh, another system called Venture. And then there's also uh, the Anglican programming, uh, probabilistic programming language out of Oxford. I think the, um, I think like Frank, Wood, Frank Wood's group there. Um, and then um, there's also uh, Chimple and Dimple, which are being developed by uh, Ben Vigoda and colleagues. And then also more recently, kind of the spiritual successor to Bugs, I think, is, is a probabilistic programming language called Stan, 
uh, which is uh, is kind of growing a little bit more out of the statistics community and has uh, a really a sort of a growing community and does lots of cool things like includes automatic differentiation within it and uses Hamiltonian Monte Carlo and so on. So there's been a lot of a lot of interest in this, and computers are finally kind of fast enough to really have a chance of solving some of these problems. The uh, you know, and there's been a lot of interesting work to try to make the languages very expressive and easy to use and uh, and kind of interesting to people who are not already experts in this this kind of stuff, which is which is great, right? So getting back to the kind of the original point, the idea is that then somebody who wants to use a Bayesian model does not have to think about inference. These are you know these are very exciting developments because they're exactly about this. They're about how we can uh, give powerful and expressive tools to people who are not experts in inference. They can get busy writing down the model of the world that they care about for the data and the problem that they care about, the science they want to do. And then the sort of compiler does inference for them. And, um, and they, don't have to, they don't have to worry about that. And, and this is an incredibly exciting idea that people could focus on, uh, on this structure that they want to estimate without having to sort of become Bayesian statisticians first. The hard part is, is simply that inference is really hard. So a lot of the effort has gone into coming up with very expressive and powerful languages where people can go from their ideas to uh, these probabilistic programs straightforwardly. Um, but inference is almost always very hard. And if the model is interesting, then then inference is going to be challenging. And so I think there's a lot of, there's still a lot of work to do to figure this out. But fortunately, a lot of smart people are are really, uh, you know, spending their days thinking about this. We'll have links to papers about probabilistic programming at our website, thetalkingmachines.com. listener question on Talking Machines was inspired by episode 20 with Pedro Domingos. Hello, my name is John Bloom. I did a postdoc in theoretical math at MIT before joining the Broad Institute of Harvard and MIT as a computational scientist, where I work with a team to engineer tools for scalable machine learning on huge genetic data sets. I also co-organize a seminar on machine learning for computational biologists who are all now addicted to this podcast as well. So I was especially intrigued by something Pedro Domingo said in episode 20, that machine learning is now facilitating knowledge transfer between different domains like biology and economics through common models and abstractions, similar to how mathematics has in the past. For me, this raises a few questions. How does machine learning's role compare to that of mathematics? How far has this idea been implicitly and explicitly supported in the machine learning community? And are there ways we can accelerate the rate of knowledge transfer with respect to both quantity and quality? As a concrete example, consider that biology itself includes many subdomains like genetics, cancer, neuroscience, and molecular biology. I'm very interested in how we might engineer frameworks for inference in which a biologist can build a model from simple pieces with the inference algorithm generated automatically. If users could further register a scientific description of the overall inference problem they're solving, and the meaning of the variables, then biologists in different domains might be able to more easily share, search, and modify one another's models to suit their particular use cases, and perhaps more easily engage and iterate with the machine learning community as well. Thank you very much. Thanks for the question, John. So, you know, first off, thinking about the difference between uh, mathematics and machine learning, I mean, obviously they're different fields uh, in the sense that they're occupied by different people, they define themselves in different ways, but at the end of the day, uh, machine learning is applied mathematics, and I think this is something that people recognize more and more. 
even in your department at MIT, Ankur Moitra is a you know is a machine learning researcher, and uh, and theoretical computer science is a mathematical discipline. Um, and I think the difference between sort of uh, you know <laughs> math you know being a mathematician and being a theoretical computer scientist is is pretty hard to is pretty hard to see. So um, I don't think I don't think of them as being all that different. Um, I think it's just me. One way of thinking about it is that you know machine learning happens to be a sort of a uh, a particular area of applied math that is extremely uh, successful right now in in blending ideas from you know computation and statistics and other areas. Now, more generally thinking about knowledge transfer between areas, I mean that, that's a really kind of like a fun a fun thing to think about, and, and it happens I think at a couple different levels. Methodologically centered fields kind of always have this property because if you're in the business of making tools, then what you really want is to make tools that are as broadly useful as possible, right? So getting better at regression, you know, does mean getting better at biology, but it also means getting better at civil engineering, right? And and so uh, at least, you know, for, for myself, when I build tools, I, I get really excited to see that maybe the diverse ways that people can use them. Um, now, the knowledge transfer itself, in that case, is kind of flowing through the method. You know, you pay attention to the way somebody's using it in one area and its deficiencies or its successes, and you try to fix those. And probably it happens that that field wasn't the only place where those deficiencies existed. Um, more generally, I would say that you know, the people involved, you know, are kind of where it's, it's most interesting. So uh, good methodological researchers drive a lot of their work with specific applied domains. They try to get involved and collaborate closely with experts in chemistry or genetics or whatever it is. And that results in being able to occasionally bring insights about problem structure from one domain to another. And this is something that that really does happen, I would say. Um, the, uh, you know, taking kind of knowledge about the way to uh, yeah, scale out some kind of uh, classification problem or scale out some kind of complicated, uh, you know, estimation and um, and apply to, a, you know, a different domain in which there's there's large and complicated data sets. So um, I think that's kind of what makes it exciting from a sort of culture of science point of view where uh, people who interact across disciplines because they're methodologically centered can can kind of help help bring these insights across. The downside is that they're not experts in those domains. And so a lot of times it can be challenging simply because the, um, you know, because they have, they're, they're necessarily going to have a more superficial level of knowledge than the people who actually sort of, you know, spend their days pipetting things around or whatever it is, because, you know, these people just have a, you know, have had extensive, they spent their PhDs uh, learning about biology rather than learning about uh, linear algebra or whatever. Um, and this is kind of also what makes it all fun. The, uh, you know, then within biology, you know, I would say that kind of what you're describing is, is both exciting and terrifying that there, that, you know, we talk about biology as a field, but it's not like a single field. It's a thousand fields. Uh, and, uh, and they sometimes don't talk to each other. Uh, and they sometimes have completely different algorithms to solve very similar problems. I think for specific kind of areas, uh, there there is a huge opportunity though to take advantage of what I kind of think of as as hierarchical modeling, where in a place like the Broad, you know, maybe you have a bunch of different people that are kind of working on related problems and have kind of similar data, and they're in the end in some ways studying the same biological organism, right? And that biological org organism has some properties we'd like to understand and. All of the people sort of in the building are all 
um, are all sort of tackling, uh, you know, tackling this kind of larger scientific picture. And so information kind of should flow in a kind of a statistical way, um, you know, between these between these different groups. Um, that is that, you know, maybe there's some pathway that influences some gene you care about and then somebody else has some, you know, uh, some membrane protein that they care about. And um, and they would both be able to do better science if they uh, if they knew more about this kind of this kind of latent structure. And it would be amazing to be able to build more unifying models where everybody's kind of able to shove their data into it and get better estimates out because of the, um, you know, because all of the different parts are getting better and better estimates. That's a dream that's that's pretty hard to accomplish. It is kind of where we want to go in some ways. And, and you're starting to see, I think, the um, the kind of the, the initial phases of this as people uh, get better at putting on, um, you know, putting their code online, as people make their, pu- their data sets public, and then as people start doing more meta-analyses, um, and building annotation tools and all kinds of different things that allow people to to share this information, um, you know, at some point, you know, we were just talking about probabilistic programming. At some point, people are going to start sort of trying to build the probabilistic program, uh, you know, of the cell. Or I mean, that's that's a very ambitious thing, but that's but that's kind of where it needs to go. Where there's a lot of interacting parts, uh, there's uncertainty about basically all of them. There's some kinds of experiments we can do, some kind of validations we can run. And these gradually pin down all of these mechanisms that that are not very well understood, and um, and different labs and different groups all over the world uh, kind of all have something to say about a different piece. And if if we could kind of you know unify that, it would be it would be amazing. I and mean, this is this is the this is the long term process of science, um, and and hopefully we can accelerate it with better tools. Thanks for your question. If you've got a question for Talking Machines, you can reach us at TLKNGMCHNS on Twitter or thetalkingmachines at gmail.com. This week's guest on Talking Machines is David Mimno of Cornell University. And when we sat down with him at NIPS back in 2014, we asked him the same question that we ask everyone first. How did you get where you are? Oh, it, it, well, it's sort of a long story. So um, my undergraduate degree was in classics um, and also computer science. Um, and so I, I, I've always had this interest in, in the past and historical documents and ancient languages. Um, after graduating, I, I worked for a tech company for a few years um, and was basically de- designing web pages. Mm. Um, and then for, for various reasons, I, I um, my wife and I went to live in England for a year or so, and I, I happened to get a job with the Natural Language Processing Group at Sheffield. Um, and I'd, I'd really never been exposed to, to NLP or, or to learning um, in, in computational settings before then, and it, it really just, it was an amazing experience. Um, and from there, I, I was lucky enough to get a job with um, a digital library project called Perseus, mm. uh, the Perseus Digital Library at Tufts, um, which is this really massively important resource for the, the world of classics um, because it, it has basically all of the Greek and Roman texts that, that people read and a lot that they don't read mm-hmm. um, in, in really nice digitized format. Mm. Um, but... Um, so, so what I realized was that the 
the wonderful thing about the Perseus interface was that it, it had this kind of rich interlinking between resources for reading languages you don't understand very well and cultures you're not familiar with. Um, it, linking that back to the text right. through computational interfaces. But at root, it was all really just um, 19th century scholarship. <laughs> um, you know, literally, because of copyright, that's, that's the stuff that, available that was available. Yeah. And so a, a lot of my job was just chopping up old books and, and scanning them and, and turning them. Uh, like you, you can think of a, a dictionary as a database. Mm-hmm. And so making that, that dictionary into the computational form uh, actually I- improves its usability. Um, but you know, I, I got to the, a point where you know, I loved what I was doing and I really had, felt like I had an impact on, on what, what scholars in that field were able to do. Um, but I felt like there's so much more that you could do with computational approaches to text. Hmm. And so that, that got me into machine learning and I went to graduate school at, at University of Massachusetts Amherst and did postdoc at Princeton and then, and then got this job. Excellent. And so you, at Princeton, you worked with David Bly, correct? Yeah. So um, what what sort of questions were you tackling there? Is that sort of the digital humanities things that he's involved in now? Yeah. So so during my graduate uh, study, I, I was mostly just going for straightforward machine learning. Mm. Uh, I'm just trying to get the math down. And um, w- with my postdoc, um, I, I started to get back a bit more into the, the digital humanities world, which, which had kind of developed over the, that period. Um, and some of the, the questions I was looking at there were about um, how can you, scholars take very large collections of text, or comparatively very large collections, like thousands of novels or the entire run of a newspaper, and answer interesting questions um, in ways that... Um, Especially could could give you some some level of um, confidence isn't necessarily the right word, but but um, th- there's this general problem where you can run an algorithm mm-hmm. on some data, but there's a gap between that and what is valuable to a scholar as saying something about the past right. or some cultural phenomenon. And what you really want to know is, is how reliable is the, the pattern that you're detecting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it, I was doing some work with a colleague um, who's now at University of Nebraska, Matt Jockers, um, where we were, were really doing hypothesis testing on you know, how do themes and different classes of authors like um, broken up by gender or nationality or, or time period um, how, how did those how did different sorts of authors use different themes hmm. um, and, and is that difference random or indistinguishable sort of- from from randomness or is there some real pattern that, that you could find there and what what was your result well what, one thing that we were really interested in is in that study is um, there's a large number of novels that w- within the corpus that, that they had collected um, that have no known author. Hmm. 
Uh, so it's not just people writing under pseudonyms. Like, like we know that George Eliot is female. Right. Things like that. Uh, the, the, these are people who are actually not available to modern scholarship. And um, th th that's not so surprising because, you know, we're, we're going quite far back into the catalog there to, you know, at the 3,000 or 4,000 novel right. level. Like it's estimated there were probably about 20,000 novels in the 19th century in English. Mm. Uh, so we, we, we had a, a good, good chunk, chunk of those. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, certainly much, much more than anyone reads, mm -hmm. uh, even in a yeah. long graduate study. Um, and so, so our question, what, what can we say about these unknown authors? Mm -hmm. And so we had authors that we, that based on scholarship and, and bibliographic evidence, we knew were male mm -hmm. and authors that we knew were female. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what, what my first guess and a lot of people's first guess is that most of the unknown authors were women mm. who for whatever societal reason or personal reason chose not to publish under their own name um, we were able to show pretty confidently that um, you, have, you have to be careful to be specific about that, that that if they were mostly women they were not writing in the same way as right. the known women Yeah, um, our best guess is probably about about the same rate of male and female authors, probably about 70, 30 hmm. um, in the unknown set. Hmm. So, so that was an interesting example of, of, I mean, you have to be careful bringing in sort of scientific terms, but, but falsifying a hypothesis. Right, yeah. So it's something that, that you know, it seemed like a reasonable guess, and the, the evidence of, from a thematic perspective didn't, didn't follow that. Hmm. Uh, the other thing we were looking at is, are people choosing to withhold their names because of what they were talking about? Ah, is that, does subject matter yeah. of the book influence whether or not you're exactly. going to put your name on it? And, and so, you know, where I was really contributing was, um, you know, that the, the statistical method that Dave Bly and, and I and, and Andrew McCallum, my, my um, grad advisor, work with a lot is um, statistical topic modeling mm -hmm. which is um, it's a technique where you, you take lots of um, I, I prefer the term text segments yeah. uh, because when you say documents people have ideas about what a document you is. You make an assumption when you hear the yeah. word document. Yeah. Um, you know is a novel a document? Right. It turns out a novel is way too large for that that particular um, technique to work on um, and um, so we, we use that technique to extract what we call topics uh, which, which generally sort of correspond to things that people recognize as themes mm -hmm. um, you know, some of the examples from that corpus of novels were um, descriptions of trials mm. or um, scenes of natural beauty mm -hmm. like mountain sky right we, we, we basically have clusters of words that tend to occur together right um and so from a scholarly perspective you can use that model to get a you, you can use the topics that are extracted as a proxy for some kind of theme mm -hmm. that that you're interested in um it also picks up on things like OCR errors and 
the little bit of text that Google puts in their digitized books about how this was created by Google. Right. For, yeah. So um, not not all of it is, is kind of recognizable things, but mm-hmm. uh, w- with a fair bit of work in curating the texts and selecting a good vocabulary and um, and and parsing the data, uh, you, you can you can get um, you know we out of 500 topics probably 400 450 were really specific crisp um, thematic clusters mm. that, that are readily recognizable to people especially familiar with the corpus mm. um, and you know the, the assertion is that we can use those as a proxy for other things that we care about right but in a way that that's um, that's reflected by the actual words right yeah. not by someone's opinion about what the interesting things are and how to how to code it um, and also it's something that we could get in a few hours rather than years and years of, of careful scholarship right right um, so so using that set of themes we were looking for um, which themes were associated more than we would expect with these unknown authors Mm -hmm. and there were a few that that seemed to be related to um, there there was one that that looked like religious um, religious institutions like convents and abbeys Mm. and we were thinking well you know religion is a it's a controversial issue right. and you know there are different everybody has their own take you know, people yeah. are attacking each other and putting out <laughs> novels as yeah. to, to say well, how horrible the, these people are <laughs> um, and you know usually the, the concentration of a given theme in unknown um, authored materials is somewhere between the male and female mm-hmm. authored materials mm-hmm. and then th- this one was quite a bit further out mm. Um, but when we looked at um, the sort of sensitivity to outliers and we, we specifically did a test called a bootstrap mm-hmm. test where we, we randomly um, either duplicated or, or held out certain novels from, from that test collection um, we realized that there were two novels um, in, in that unknown author section that were really skewing hmm. that that um, that number hmm. and one of them actually wasn't even unknown it was an it was an abridgment of oh. of, a, of another novel that, that had been published <laughs> separately separately yeah. um, oh, no. and not necessarily like may, maybe it was pirated I, I, I don't I'm not familiar with exactly but um, so it you know, we, we would have loved to have this very strong evidence that there, here's you know people right. who feel they cannot publish their their work their work under their own name because, because of what of they're the writing topic, about, yeah. mm-hmm. um, and and the, the, in the end the the numbers told us that that case was not nearly as strong as we first thought mm-hmm. it was, mm-hmm. um, which is a really interesting methodological yeah situation. So, 
so what are you working where what are you working on today what's your sort of research the research topic that you're tackling at Cornell right now well so, so one of the projects that, that I've been working on with some folks at UCLA is related to um, trying to, to reverse engineer um, a folklorist oh really wow um, so th- th- this is this project where uh, so this is with uh, Peter Broadwell and, and Tim Tangerlini um, Tim is a, a, a Scandinavian expert, um, and, and he, he and Pete have um, digitized this very large collection of, of Danish folk tales, mm-hmm. um, which were published over many years um, by one um, one scholar who who was basically walking all over Denmark, um, collecting these these stories. Wow, and. Um, and he would publish them in volumes that were sort of had a, had a thematic character to them. They, mm. they had a title, mm-hmm. and and it's clear that he was trying to organize them by some kind of kind of theme. Um, so here, unlike the the novels case, we actually have some idea that these stories are grouped. You know, they're, in they're, some they're, way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're, they're grouped um, in a way, and. But we also, you know, that's, you know, that's the best expert on this collection <laughs> telling us right. what the organization is. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but we don't necessarily trust that entirely because it's his personal it, it's organization. A, it's his personal organization. It, it's bound by, you know, he can't have a volume that's too big or it wouldn't sell. Right. Um, he can't have one that's too small. Or that also won't sell. Is that, right. It's not worth yeah, printing. Exactly. And he has uh, to, and he's in some way constrained by what people are interested in at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, maybe that affects how he's collecting it too. And there's a lot of things we can't control. But, um, and also the, the, the restriction that you can only publish a story once. Right. It is, is it, it's a really significant restriction it puts it puts equal weight on all the stories despite yeah um, and and we know that there are a lot of stories that that kind of cross genres mm-hmm. and there, there's a lot of stories that might not necessarily fit in any particular schema um, and so what, what we we're trying to do is reintroduce some of the um, some of the uncertainty mm. into these classifications mm-hmm. now we, we want to use the scheme that he came up with but um, but we don't necessarily want to trust it. Right. And so what we used was um, a, a very simple machine learning tool called a naive Bayes classifier, mm-hmm. um, where we basically just, just count the number of, uh, f- for each of these volumes, we treat it as a label and we make a histogram of all the words that, that occur in that volume. Mm-hmm. And then we take each story, we, we remove its counts, mm-hmm from whatever volume it's officially in. Right. And then say, which of the, the volumes is it closest to? Hmm. And, m- you know, he, he knew what he's doing. Most of the stories, their their most likely location is, is the volume that they're in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but th- there's a lot of stories that um, that actually look more to the classifier like, like a different volume. Mm. Hmm. And, or there, there are stories where, you know, it's it's about one thing, but it's also about another thing. Right. And to a folklorist, that's the most interesting right. case because it, it's you know that the storytellers are constructing 
genres, but they're also the way they communicate is is about crossing boundaries and Mm -hmm. mixing things together. Um, And so what what I love about that project is that it's an example of how scholars and humanists really use um, use machine learning tools in a way that's very different, almost upside down mm. from a lot of a lot of the the, the other um, ways that the, the, the other ways that people, especially in, in commercial settings, right. do. Because you know, if if you're if you're a credit card company and you need to know is this transaction fraudulent or not, what right. you what you care about is making the prediction correctly right um, whereas the folklorist they're most interested in where the simple model is going wrong right 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 because you know I, I sort of think of it as the model takes away the variability that in in the text collection that's easily explained mm-hmm. by these ridiculously stupid models like right. word histograms right um and what's left is is the interesting stuff mm-hmm. the stuff that doesn't make sense doesn't that doesn't fit. fit the pattern yeah um and you know for, for one way it, it um it provides a really good way to to index a collection mm-hmm. and to explore a collection to look at you know what what are the stories that are about um manor lords and female ghosts right yeah right um and and we had a great example of one story there um but it's also it, it's really interesting to look at which are the which are the classes that are most confused mm-hmm. mm. and and have the most crossover right um you know there, there's an example like um there, there there's a, a volume about mound dwellers okay Got it. I'm, I'm learned, I've learned a lot about, <laughs> and, and another about treasure, and and, and it turns out that that Lots treasure is have treasure? found in mounts. Exactly. Got it. Nice. Um, <laughs> so it, it's just a really fun collection to work with. Excellent. Um, What's the strangest crossover you found? Mound dwellers, treasure. That seems like that seems like a pretty straight line. Are female ghosts hanging out with frogs a lot of the time? Or I, I didn't see that. So so the the one that that we we thought was really interesting was. Um, so there, there was one about manor lords, mm-hmm. and and this particular type of ghost called a revenant. Okay, which is what which is, is a sort revenant? of a, a it's it's almost a, a like a zombie ghost, so that they're not sort of shambling like zombies, right. but they're they're a recently dead person who comes back Got to it. to sort of harass certain people, and uh, the 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 story that was. I forget which which was the official label, but it, it was it was a crossover between these manor lords and the and the female revenants. Was um, it was one about a a young girl who had been impregnated by a manor lord and had um, either died in childbirth or or committed suicide, and 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 Tim the the, the folklorist could tell from the name of the the, the storyteller that this was a a highborn young woman hmm. who, who probably lived on one of these manors. Right, right. So she's she's she knows all about this. She knows yeah. all about girl zombie ghosts. And and you know the 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 guess is that you know this is how this person is is trying to enforce the 
the moral constraints. Like, right. You know, I know what you boys are getting up to. This is right. what's going to happen. Yes. I present to you the zombie ghost. Exactly. Who will then come yeah. and harass you. Mm-hmm. So you better watch what you do. That's really fascinating. That's really it, You know, it's, it's ways of sending messages. But, right. You know, it, 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 it's interesting because that's what the folklorists are really after. Right. And, and, and scholars What does this say about yeah. the writer and the society mm-hmm. at the time that they're writing? And what... If, if I feel like if I'm successful, then people who have access to large text collections will be able to use this type of tool in ways that, that don't require hanging out at computer science conferences <laughs> or, or learning about Dirichlet processes. Um, but that it, it'll, it'll give people the ability to use large text collections, but, but put the scholarship in the forefront. Right. So that's, that's interesting that you say that because um, uh, recently there's been, or there, there is a lot of talk about larger and larger data sets and how to expand them and how to use larger and larger data sets. But mm-hmm. at the same time, there seems to be an, an emphasis placed on actually like taking your raw data and spending enough time sort of wading through it and looking mm-hmm. at it and being familiar with it and sort of figuring out what all the little peccadilloes in that data set are so that you can ask the, ask the interesting questions. Yeah. Um, and you recently, you recently wrote uh, a short article about, uh, oh, there, was a, yeah. there was a piece in the New York mm-hmm. Times that said that um, data janitorial work brings you closer to like the interesting questions, but you mm-hmm. argued that janitorial work, like that it shouldn't be janitorial, it should be carpentry. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, and actually I, I feel like this, um, thinking about the difference between humanists and, and mathematicians is, is really enlightening because um, that when you look at what is the work of a scholar, you know, often it's like spending three years learning 17th century administrative Dutch, right? right so that right. you can read <laughs> so you can, documents right. about this person early was New a York. Dutch administrator, yeah. and I can understand his life. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. Um, and it's that that obsessive devotion to a particular corpus mm-hmm. that I think is often lacking in in computer science mm-hmm. and, and data analysis. Um, you know, mathematically, you want to get everything down to some matrix X. Right. Which is your input data. Yeah. Um, and and I think a lot of times people lose the perspective on the work that has to go into getting, getting to that observations point. and yeah. files on disk to that point, but also understanding, you know, what what really is the character of the data. Right. Um, and and I feel like adding a more humanistic perspective to being willing even to look at the specifics of, of, of the inputs and, and spend some time looking at the particulars mm. um, can really benefit the, the computer science and, and machine learning perspective. Uh, so do you think um, do you think we're going to move towards uh, generic models for any sort of data set and do you think there's going to be something lost in that or or on the other hand do you think we're going to start having people who are I'm I am a machine learning specialist in 17th century Dutch, Dutch administration mm-hmm. you know do you think we're going to get more uh, specification or uh, I, I think the best division of, of responsibility and, and sharing um, sharing work is is that there are certain ways of specifying a problem 
that are really well adapted for computational methods. Mm-hmm. And you know, if, if you can reduce your problem to this particular thing, like is this a this or a that? Yeah. Um, like is this a manor lord or a female revenant? Right. Exactly. Um, then you have a lot of power suddenly that to to do computational things and and to get both good predictions and and models that you can interpret. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I I really don't want good scholars trying to implement machine learning algorithms <laughs> um, because it, that, that's something that that really needs to be done by a machine learning specialist, both by people who who really have, have spent time with, with the mathematics and the programming, but also, you know, it just doesn't need to be done that often. Right. Oh, right. Um, and I would like to see those people with the more specific expertise mm. putting work into both the, the preparation of data for this, whatever particular problem seems to be the most, the, the best mapping mm-hmm. of their real scholarly need. Right. And then, you know, looking again at, at interpreting those results and, and checking the model and seeing where the model is failing and using that as an inspiration to, to look at to ask the, the next data. question. You know, I, I really see machine learning um, as an invitation to explore a collection in really detailed, fine-grained ways that that people haven't necessarily been been looking at them like to think about and in some cases just aren't haven't been physically possible before exactly yeah you 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 don't have that much time you can't do things at that scale and and you know to to look at what is the particular meaning of a specific word in context Mm -hmm. yeah that's that's straight up 19th century german philology (laughs) right um it's something that has a very long tradition in, in scholarship and um, and I think the, the, the sort of the digitality of of of, of representing text as data, um, you know, it, it you know I, I think there's a fear that it'll make it sort of cold mm. and crisp and digital. Mm. Um, but I actually feel like it, it gets people closer to the text. David Mimno of Cornell University. He's in the information science department over there. Yeah, you know, and I think sometimes we talk about knowledge transfer and, and machine learning. And I think David Mimno is a really great example of this. You know, he's, he's kind of leading the charge to, um, to take some of these really interesting ideas uh, from machine learning and, and push those into the humanities. And it's really fascinating to see these ideas just like open up entire new departments and yeah. allow people to ask questions that they really never would have been able to ask before. Fascinating stuff. That's it for us this week. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. Tune in next episode. Support for this episode of Talking Machines comes from Tala. Tala builds intelligent automated assistance for the B2B space. Tala is interested in hiring junior and senior machine learning experts. They're also beginning the search for a CTO. Good candidates will be interested in exploring questions around natural language processing. Great candidates will have previous experience with distributed representations and deep learning. Interested? Send your resume to jobs at thetalkingmachines.com. Talking Machines is an original production of Tote Bag Productions. Our theme music was composed by John Ferrati. Our logo was designed by Alex Wilchko and arranged by Mike Rohr. 
Want to get in touch with us? TheTalkingMachines.com or TheTalkingMachines at gmail.com. Interested in a job you've heard about on our show? Email us at jobs at TheTalkingMachines.com. <laughs>